morning I want to do something a little different, and uh, usually we're teaching uh, in an expository manner through a book of the Bible, now it happens to be Matthew, but we're just going to take a break for a couple weeks and uh, focus on, uh, like I said, the, the book of Haggai in the Old Testament, but today I just want to do, uh, do kind of a message entitled, In Christ Alone, and sometimes in our lives, in our Christian lives especially, we can uh, get caught up in a lot of different things. And sometimes it's good to revisit the basic things. And so I, I want you to turn to two verses with me this morning. Uh, one is in 1 Corinthians, and one is in 2 Corinthians. The first one is in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. The Apostle Paul is writing both these epistles to believers in a city called Corinth. And he says in verse 2 of chapter 2, he says, For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Just let that sink in. I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. You can put a little mark there or a bookmark or something and turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And I want us to focus in on verse 3. But I fear lest someone, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Now, as we look at those two verses, I want you to ask the question, do we ever leave a blank where Christ should be? Do we ever leave a blank where Christ should be? Uh, There was a picture, famous picture, hanging in, Berlin Gallery, and it's called The Unfinished Painting. And the reason it's called The Unfinished Painting is because the person who was painting it, the artist um, Menzies is his name, he actually died in the middle of this painting. He wasn't able to finish it. But the painting was a portrayal of the king and his generals. And he got so caught up in the detail of the generals surrounding the king and the uniforms of the generals and everything, he got so caught up with that that it took him so long he ended up passing away in the middle of the painting. And all he was able to finish was the detail in the generals' uniforms and on their faces and everything around the king. But there's, on that painting, there's a great void in the middle. There's just a blank gap. And that gap represents where the king should be. (laughs) The central character of the whole painting. But all there is there is a blank. Like I said, do we ever leave a blank where Christ should be? See, he was taken up so much with the detail of the generals and all those details of the surrounding elements of the king himself, he never got to paint the king. 
And sometimes we get so caught up with peripheral issues in our lives and secondary issues in our Christian lives that we leave the central character, Jesus Christ, out of our individual existence. And even in the life of our churches. So I want you to think this morning with me as we look at these two verses and compare them. There's something common between them and we're going to be looking at that. But I think as Christians we do the same thing. From the moment of our conversion, the moment we come to Christ, we have the intentions of allowing Christ to be the Lord of our lives. I'm sure we've done that. We give him the throne of our lives in every area of our lives. We've done that. And it's the same thing really with churches in general. We all have great intentions that Jesus is the Lord of the church, the head of the church, the reins of all the decision-making that goes on, the aims and the goals and the objectives. Everything lines up under Christ. That's what we say. He's the direction for our fellowship. But the question I want to ask you this morning is, do we ever leave a blank where Christ should be? We often use language that we intend to imply that. Well, I'm going to walk through this with God. We say that. We want to give Christ his rightful place as head of the church and as Lord of our lives. We use those words, but somewhere along the line, sometimes very early in our Christian experience, in in the life of our individual fellowships even, we become occupied with lesser details. Trivial details, you might say, in comparison to the grandeur of Christ and his centrality in our lives. Now, both of these texts, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, those verses we read, has that emphasis to keep Christ central. Christ alone. It's one of the calls of the the reformers. You remember in the, the Reformation they had various points they went by. Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone. We're not worried about the traditions of the church. We're going to focus on Scripture alone. Sola Fide. By faith alone. And the capstone of really the Reformation was Solo Christos in Christ alone. We need to rediscover the centrality of Jesus Christ in our lives as we live for him and as we desire to serve and move this church to where God desires it to be. When you stop and you think, after all, to the church, we read the New Testament, he is the one and only head. There's not multiple heads of the church, there's only one, that's Christ. To the Christian, there's only one leader. There's only one Lord. That's Jesus Christ. See, he's central to everything we do. And what these two texts this morning affirm to us is that Christ ought to have his rightful place. He should always be the focal point of our lives. He should be preeminent in our church 100% of the time. I mean, if you want to look at it from a negative standpoint... 
you should never let anything or anyone take Christ's place, ever. I mean, that's really the same as transgressing the first commandment. Have no other gods before him. And so as we consider these passages this morning, and as we begin to prepare a heart for our communion time together, I want you to ask this question. What is the relevance of this affirmation in both of our texts to the Corinthians who Paul was writing to? Why is he writing this? Well, if you look at our text in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, you see that Corinth was riddled with problems. They had problems of disunity. They had problems of politics. All sorts of things were going on in this church. Look at verse 11 of chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. Just to give you a little idea what was going on in this church. For it, Paul writes, For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brothers, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. He says, now I say this, that each of you says, and look at what they do. They began to follow people. (laughs) They began to follow human beings. I am of Paul. Or another one would say, I am of Apollos. Or I am of Cephas. Or I am of Christ. And we have to stop in ask ourselves the very question that he asks in verse 13, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? See, simply what was happening here, these Corinthians believers had taken their eyes off Christ and they put them on a man. They put them on individuals. Once again, we should never let anything or anyone take Christ's preeminent place in our lives or in our church. Some of them say they're following Paul. They love the apostle to the Gentiles. Maybe because he was detailed about his analysis of the Old Testament scriptures and interpreted to them a new covenant. Maybe it was his legal mind, his weight of argument. But then there were others who followed Apollos. We know from the New Testament that he was a very gifted orator. Sometimes good preachers often can sway people and have a great following. So they said, well, we'll follow this man, Apollos. And then there was Cephas, just another name for the apostle Peter there. And Peter was a man of the people. We know that as we studied his life. He was blunt. He was rough. But he was a man who the people, I'm sure, related to. He had a passion for God and for the people. Naturally, they would love somebody like that. Then there were those, the fourth group, who said they, we are of Christ. They were exclusive. They believed they were the Lord's true people. They didn't fall into the trap of following mere men. They followed the Son of God. But see, they even had a problem. Their problem was they looked down at others to their exclusion. 
Now, if you look at the second text in 2 Corinthians, we find out that they not only took their eyes off of Christ and began to follow men, but Corinthians, the Corinthian church was riddled with a lot of human philosophy, a lot of Greek philosophy. Philosophy, and that was a problem in First and Second Corinthians, as you read through those letters. You see that the, the Greek philosophy and human wisdom took place of Christ. Sometimes logic in our lives can take place of Christ. And they effectively took their eyes off Christ and fastened it upon the intellect or speculation or whatever was going around at the time. Even back in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 23 and 24, he points that out to them. He says, But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So he's making a plea for them, don't follow human wisdom. But then you come to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 3, and Paul is essentially saying here that possibly they have been deceived, their minds have been corrupted from what is simplicity in Christ. They, they, they followed other teachings. See, Paul explains to them that he is jealous in verse 2. He says, for I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. He wanted them to be faithful. He says, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. He had a concern for them. And although Paul here fears that these false apostles should lead believers astray with false doctrine, as the serpent did Eve, that's why he brings that up, his great fear is that their minds may be led astray. What it says there is from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Why do we make the Christian life so difficult? Do you remember when you first got saved? Somebody shared the gospel with you. God worked in your heart. You responded. And it, it seems so new. It seems so fresh. It seems so dynamic. I mean, you pick up a copy of God's word and you just devour it. And now it becomes so complex. It becomes so difficult. He wants them to be devoted to Christ and Christ alone. They shouldn't take their eyes off Christ and don't get them fixed on anything else or anyone else. Now, how is that relevant to us? Let's, let's take this that happened way back then and apply it to us today. Well, I think it applies directly across the boards. In the Christian life, a lot of times we struggle from the beginning of our faith to the end. Before our conversion, Satan battles to blind our minds to the gospel. 
And then once the battle is won and we become a converted person where Christ has transformed our heart and life and forgiven our sins, after conversion there's still a battle between the world, the flesh, and the devil, the Bible tells us, and the things of God. You could call it a battle between the flesh and the spiritual. And you may be sitting here today and say, well, yeah, I don't deal with that. You know what? Everybody here deals with that. There's nobody that's been arrived. There's nobody here that's perfect. There's nobody here that's sinless. You may get victory in some areas of your life, but I guarantee you're going to struggle in others. Because you're in a fleshly body. You're in a sinful world. There's temptations all around us. And so we're going to grapple with the temptations of the world, the flesh, and the devil until we get a glorified body, until he comes back or we go to him, whatever it will be. Are you looking forward for that day? Amen. But I think that's a great struggle in our lives as Christians because there's a tension there. The tension is between the spiritual things and Christ. You say, what? Yeah, see, the battle, the struggle between spiritual things and Christ. And what I want to ask you this morning is, what is central to your spiritual life? What is central? What is right center point on the stage in your Christian life? What is the center of your spiritual life? Is it him or is it it? What do you mean by that? What is central to your spiritual life? Is it a him? Is it him or is it a it? Well, it's kind of vague, so let me explain what I mean. It could be simply an experience that you've had since you first believed. It could be a particular doctrine that you love. And we find that people in relation to salvation often have a particular understanding of it if they love it. When it comes to salvation, you have people who are Arminian in their faith. You have people who are Calvinistic in their faith. We're not going to go into all the details of that this morning. I'm just saying people pick sides. Then in prophecy, there are those who are pre-mill, ah-mill, post-mill, And then there's some people who just say, I don't have a clue. That could be your it. Some people, their it is a particular church denomination. I'm Presbyterian. I'm Baptist. I'm Methodist. I'm Episcopalian. We're independent. Non-denominational. That could be your it. It could even be described as the work that you're involved in. Maybe you're a Sunday school teacher. Maybe you help out in the nursery. Maybe you help out with worship. Maybe you're an elder. Maybe you're a deacon. Maybe you're a pastor. That can become your it. It could be a certain Bible interpretation. The way you believe the Bible ought to be interpreted figuratively, literally. 
this, that, the whatever. It may even be a Bible version or a Bible reference. See, it could be anything, is what my point is. It could be anything. And all those it's aren't necessarily bad things. No matter how good and legitimate those things may be, and some of them are very important, I'm not trying to say we shouldn't teach doctrine. I'm not saying you shouldn't have a, 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 an opinion on certain doctrinal issues. Obviously, you go to the Bible and you see what the Bible teaches, and hopefully that's your opinion. But we must be aware in the Christian life that we should never replace Him with it. What is central to your Christian life? Because I, I guarantee you right now, beloved, the tempter of the devil is conscience that good men and women who perhaps are grappling in the world, the flesh and the devil, they're never going to be defeated by just outright evil. Satan's smarter than that. So he comes along and here's his ploy. He seeks to get them obsessed with secondary and peripheral truths in order that they should maybe give preeminence to those things over Christ. And all of a sudden, the centrality of Christ in the life and in the church is gone. And nobody knows where it went. He has been displaced by an it. And it can happen just like that. It's been observed over history some who have studied church history, that almost every organization which began in the spirit with Christ as being central, sooner or later, has been gradually drawn away from devotion to Jesus Christ. Almost every sect or denomination existing took a detour from the highway of Christ to the byways of less important Things things like vegetarianism, abstaining from tea or coffee, holy days, the Sabbath day, which one to worship, the traditions that, that build up around some simple statements of the Lord until they become these divisive doctrines that have nothing to do with feeding the soul at all. And what is true of organizations down through Christian history, is also true of individuals. And we have to beware of that. We can be so easily distracted from Christ alone. I want to ask you this morning, are you? Are you distracted from Christ? Has something, it, taken his place as your focus? A.B. Simpson, the founder of Missionary Alliance, he wrote these words of his own experience. He said, I wish to speak to you about Jesus and Jesus only. And he goes on to say, I often hear people say, I wish I could get a hold of a divine healing, but I cannot. Sometimes they say, I got it. And if I ask them, what have you got? The answer is sometimes something like this. I've got the blessing." Sometimes it's, I've got the theory. Sometimes it's, I've got the healing. I've got the sanctification. 
But I thank God we have been taught that it's not the blessing, it's not the healing, it's not the sanctification, it's not the thing, it's not the it that you want that's most important. It should be the Christ himself, Christ alone, the hope of glory. See, plenty of people get the idea of simply that, you know, they want something more in the Christian life. And so they go to all, all sorts of extremes to get this something more. They really don't even know what it is. Shouldn't Christ be sufficient? They get it in their heads that they've got to find something else. It's not, it's not just Christ. I mean, we've got to add something to it, right? No. No, we don't. Is Christ the center of your Christian experience? Or do you have it there instead? Out of Simpson's experience, he wrote a little hymn, and the hymn goes like this. Once it was a blessing, now it is the Lord. Once it was a feeling, now it is His Word. Once His gifts I wanted, now the giver own. Once I sought for healing, now Himself alone. Once t'was painful trying, now tis perfect trust. Once a half salvation, now the uttermost. Once t'was ceaseless holding, now he holds me fast. Once was constant drifting. Now my anchor's cast. And the chorus says this. All in all forever, Jesus will I sing. Everything in Jesus. And Jesus everything. Is your interest this morning simply in a church? <laughs> I mean, I love our church. Grace Bible Church is a great church. Founded almost 70 years ago, believe it or not. And on the word of God. It's been faithful over the years. I wasn't here when they founded it, by the way, if you're wondering. Great little fellowship. But is that the central thing in my life? I love the Bible. I love the scriptures. But even that shouldn't be the central thing in my life. Shouldn't be the central thing in my spiritual experience. I love certain doctrines. Love to study, learn more about God and his character and his attributes and all the things I don't understand. But see, our love for these things, they're good things. All those things are good things, but our love for those things can become its. And our love for those things must always be secondary, and motivated by our love for Christ. Simpson, in one of his books, he describes on one occasion seeing a picture of the Constitution of the United States, and it was engraved on this copper plate. And he said that when you looked at it closely, it was nothing more than just a piece of writing. But when you step back and you looked at it from a distance, it actually was a portrait of George Washington. <laughs> Amazing. 
And he said these words, I saw the person, not the words, nor the ideas. And I thought, this is the way to look at the scriptures and understand the thoughts of God. To see them in the face of love, shining through and through, not ideas nor doctrines, but Jesus Christ himself as the life and source and sustaining presence of all of our lives. We must always be careful that nothing replaces Christ as central in our lives. I mean, we can go off on a lot of different things, can't we? We can, we can talk for hours on a bunch of different... Preachers are really guilty of that. You know, you go down a certain road and you can talk about things all day long. But we don't want to get off message to where Christ is not central to what we're trying to say. What is central to your spiritual life? I pray that it's Christ. If it's not, he can be. Simply crying out to him and asking him, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me. I want you to be center in my life. I want you to be the focus of my passion and my desires. He'll answer that prayer. Well, the second question this morning, as we prepare our hearts, it's not only what was central to our, in our spiritual experience, but also what was central to Paul's spiritual experience. I mean, he's the one writing this letter that we're looking at. I mean, remember, he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees before he, is, he was converted to Christ. In other words, he spent his whole life, you might say, painting the generals. Paint, painting the generals, caught up with all the minutia of their uniforms. But the central figure of his spiritual existence as a Pharisee was missing. He was missing the Messiah. He was missing Jesus Christ. He knew all the doctrines. He knew all the traditions. He knew all the philosophies. And all of a sudden, in an instant, on the road to Damascus, his life took a turn and it caused him to rethink all of his values. And from that time on, he placed Christ and him crucified at the center of his picture. Did Paul take a detour on his way to glory after that event? Did he all of a sudden take on a ministry that was particularly dedicated to one doctrinal feature? No, he didn't. What we find about him, we read in Philippians. You can turn there if you like, Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, look at verse 8. Yet indeed I also count all things, what? What's he say? Loss for the excellent of the knowledge of Jesus Christ my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. At the end of verse 13, he says this, One thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What was he desired of? He was was desirous of having Christ, to win Christ. He counted everything as loss, everything. 
Everything else in his life was secondary to to having a better understanding of Jesus Christ. Everything else was peripheral. Everything else was less important than keeping his focus on Christ. I mean, he was in jail. He was in prison. When he was writing this letter, Philippians. It's kind of weird. We don't know how many bars were on his cell or if there were any bars. He never told us. He doesn't really tell us how damp the walls were or maybe how hard the floor was. We don't know what his meals were. He doesn't go into that stuff. It's not that he didn't have time on his hands to think about those things. <laughs> but what? It's all about Christ. All his teachings about Christ. I mean, you can go through his works and through his epistles. And when you read his works, one thing becomes evident. He doesn't speak about a lot of things. There's not a lot of secondary issues when it comes to the teachings of the Apostle Paul. I mean, there are certain biographical details that are obvious. He shares some things concerning his religious life before he was converted. He shares some things about his sufferings he experienced in the name of the Lord. But that's about it. And he wrote a majority of the New Testament. He doesn't even tell us if he was married or not. It's been speculated about. One commentator said, (laughs) maybe that was one of his sufferings. (laughs) You can take that whichever way, whether he was married or not. (laughs) But he doesn't tell us much about his early childhood. He never mentions his father, his mother. I mean, this is an extremely educated man, and yet he never mentions anything concerning his academic achievements. I mean, all the space that he has in the New Testament is there to extol and lift up and exalt Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. It's all about Jesus. Stop and think, back in Paul's time, just like there is today, there's a lot of politics going on. A lot of politics. I mean, he was writing from Rome where he was in prison. We don't hear anything about the political situation. Nothing of Nero's edicts. There's no mention of attempted assassination on the emperor's life. There's no mention of of a slave uprising. All we find is Christ, the chief cornerstone, the head of the body, who is far above all principalities and powers, who who fills all in all. That's what we see in the writings of the Apostle Paul. And that's why he said to the Corinthians, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's it. Christ alone. That was the central theme of Paul's life. Third question I want to ask this morning. I've asked you what's the central figure in your spiritual life. We see what the central center of Paul's spiritual life is. Maybe, I hope, you're sitting there asking, how, how can I make Christ the center of my life? 
I'm hoping members of our church here, our fellowship, and those in leadership are asking one question. How can we make Christ the center of our church life? It's very simple. Very simple. If something or somebody has taken his place, we need to dispose of it. We need to trash it. And we need to put him once again, enthrone him to his rightful place. I mean, nothing can be more simple to state. Has something got in the way between you and Christ? Has something taking his preeminence in your life? Well, get rid of that and put him back in his rightful place. Sounds easy. It's a lot more difficult to accomplish, let me tell you. It may be a sin that represents our it. Maybe one of the things that we've already mentioned. Or it may simply be the self-life. You're all about yourself. That we're living for number one in our existence and our gratification. I read a little article this last week about a church down south and they had a big billboard in front of their church. It was kind of on a big field and it was kind of their their motto was on this billboard. And their motto was Jesus only. And this sign had been up there for years. Well, the weather had worn, torn, and part of the sign fell off. The J-E-S part. So in front of this church, us only. That's what it said. It's often the way it is, though, if we want to be honest. We're concerned about number one. We're our biggest problem. I know I'm my biggest problem. See, whatever it may be that takes place of Christ, what we need to do is get it off the road, out of the way. Even if we're it. Even if we're it. What's Christ say? If you want to come after me, what do you have to do? You have to die to yourself. You have to be willing to lay down your life for my causes. It's not about you anymore. It's about me. That's what God wants to hear from our heart. We've got to get it out of the picture. The problem is we're usually the center, the center of our portrait, aren't we? <laughs> we're right there. I mean, if we, we took that out. We need to give Christ his preeminent place again in our lives and in our church. As John the Baptist said, he said, you know what? He must increase. I must what? Decrease. It's the hardest thing in the world, but it's the most necessary thing if we're going to know God's blessing in our personal lives, in our church. I heard a story about a little girl that was, she had a bedroom and, and, and she would go to bed at night and, and lay on her bed. And on the bedroom's wall, just over the head of the bed, was a portrait of Christ. And just opposite the bed 
was a dresser, and it had a mirror on it. The story went like this. When the girl woke up in the morning, the very first morning she cried for her mother and her father, and she said, come quickly, quickly. I can see Jesus in the mirror. While lying on the bed, what was happening was the picture was reflecting in the mirror, and she was seeing it. She woke up. It was behind her on the wall, but she saw it in the mirror. Then all of a sudden, she got up to see it clearly. And as she rose up to get a better look, she brought her body between the picture and the mirror. She couldn't see him anymore. She could just see her face. She was covering up the picture. And she lay back down and she saw the picture of Jesus. And she got up again and it was blocked. She didn't understand what was going on. Just a little girl. She did this several times up and down and she fixed her eyes upon the mirror and and, and, then she said this to her parents. And it's profound. Listen to this. Mommy, when I can't see myself, I can see Jesus. But every time I see myself, I don't see Jesus. Hmm. See, that's what it's about, isn't it? When I see this doctrine or this practice or this person or this church or this denomination or whatever hobby horse you want to jump on, that's it. I don't see Jesus anymore. My eyes are focused on something else. They're not unimportant, but they're definitely less important than Jesus. I mean, if we could get ourselves and our it out of the way so that we could see Christ in all of his glory on a daily basis, man, what God could do through our lives as individuals, through our church, in this community. Christ should be sent the center and he should be there alone in the preeminent position in our lives and here in this church. Augustine said this, Christ is not valued at all unless he is valued above all. I ask you this morning, do you value Christ above all? Is he central to your Christian experience? Maybe in your Christian life, you've been on the road for a while. Many years, 10, 20, 40, whatever, 50 years. Down, the, down through those years, I'm sure that you've progressed somewhat in your knowledge, in your giftings, in your abilities even in the experience that you've seen the Lord use you over the years. Wisdom that we glean from others with experience is phenomenal. I mean, even in our own church here, small little church, but you know what? I thank God for it. I thank God we got a lot going on. We've got a Bible-based ministry. We have a solid teaching of God's Word on a weekly basis. You walk in the door, usually somebody greets you with a smile on their face, hopefully. It's a welcoming place. We worship and honors the Lord. Children that want to learn about Christ. We have a fa- facility that is, is, is just phenomenal. When you stop and you think some churches have to set up every week. Can you imagine setting up and tearing down every week? I mean, tremendous resources in our people, 
I mean, some of you are gifted in ways that are just phenomenal. As a church, as a facility, as, as an organization, we're debt-free. That says a lot in our society today. But you know what? Here's a sobering thought. All of those things are distractions if Christ is not central. Do you understand that? All of those things. There was a story of a British scholar, and he got to go to Westminster Abbey for an event there. And as he was sitting there, he's just a guest, but he saw all these, you know, big princes and princesses, all these people coming in to be seated. The duchesses and the dukes and all these, you know, nobility, and they're, they're getting seated in different places, and he's kind of sitting back watching all that. And they're all paying homage to one another. But he said this, but then the king arrived. (laughs) And when the king arrived, all eyes turned away from those of lower rank and they were fixed upon him. And he concludes this. He says, so literature, music, art, the sciences, they're all worthy of respectful attention. But when Jesus Christ comes into the heart... He must be king. And all lesser subjects take their lesser place. See, that's the only way to have him central in your Christian experience. Replace your it, whatever it might be, with him. Or your other person for Christ. And let him be your all. That's what he desires. Close with this little poem. And then we'll have our communion time. I don't know who wrote it. It's on the internet. It's called Christ My All. It's just author unknown. Palm reads this way. Christ for sickness, Christ for health. Christ for poverty, Christ for wealth. Christ for joy, Christ for sorrow. Christ today and Christ tomorrow. Christ my life and Christ my light. Christ for morning, noon, and night. Christ when all around gives way. Christ my everlasting stay. Christ my rest and Christ my food. Christ above my highest good. Christ my beloved friend. Christ my pleasure without end. Christ my Savior. Christ my Lord. Christ my portion. Christ my God. Christ my shepherd, I his sheep. Christ himself my soul to keep. Christ my leader, Christ my peace. Christ hath wrought my soul's release. Christ my righteousness divine. Christ for me, for he is mine. Christ my wisdom, Christ my meat. Christ restores my wandering feet. Christ my advocate and priest. Christ who ne'er forgets the least. Christ my teacher. Christ my guide. Christ my rock. In Christ I hide. Christ the ever-living bread. Christ his precious blood hath shed. Christ hath brought me near to God. Christ the everlasting word. Christ my master. Christ my head. Christ, who for my sins hath bled.
Christ my glory, Christ my crown, Christ the plant of great renown, Christ my comforter on high, Christ my hope draws ever nigh. I determine not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtle ways so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ, in Christ alone. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we pray that in this church, in our lives, and in our families, that we would strive to keep your son in his rightful place. It's so easy for him to get crowded out. We get so caught up with the things of the world. And some of those things are good things. Working a job, caring for our family, providing for our family. Bible studies, prayer meetings, all those things. They're all good things. But if they come in between, or they crowd you out of the way, crowd your son out of the way, they become an it. Our eyes should be focused on Christ and Christ alone. May we know nothing else in our lives and in our church except Christ and him crucified. Deliver us, Lord, we pray, from being distracted from him to anything or anyone else. We thank you that we are saved by your grace through Christ alone. And may we live for him alone from this day forth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.